Highways Voices, the podcast of Highways News, your one-stop destination for all the news about the highways and transport technology industries, and our must-read daily newsletter. This week on Highways Voices, we talk human differences. Time flies when you're having fun, or it was the longest 10 minutes of my life. You know, we don't perceive time like a metronome or a stopwatch, for example. And ultimately, it's our perception of time that probably matters more to our behaviour than the objective duration of something. We don't see cafes be simply the efficient delivery of calories or hospitals merely be about curing or uh, affecting disease. We look at the wider sort of job to be done. Two leading behavioural scientists publish a book on Thursday 18th of November and we get a sneak peek into what it's all about as we ask Transport for Humans, are we nearly there yet? On this week's Highways Voices. Highways Voices, hearing from the people who matter in the highways industry. Hello from Paul Hutton and you won't want to miss a brilliant chat with Rory Sutherland and Pete Dyson on Highways Voices this week where we put the traveller first in transport. Before that, as always, we put the journalist first in the form of Adrian Tatum. What's the news that's jumped out at you this week, Adrian? So from me this week, Paul, a major government review has found clear evidence of authorities within the highway sector have coped well under the intense and sustained pressure placed on them by a variety of extreme weather events over the recent decade. But despite this, the sector must co-design better way to support communities over coming decades when these events occur, according to one expert. The report, prepared for the Local Government Technical Advisors Group and Department for Transport, said evidence of innovation and learning has been clearly apparent. The report said such findings are encouraging However, the persistent challenges to sector resilience are also identified and need to be addressed. Air pollution continues to cause a significant burden of premature death and disease in Europe in 2019. That's according to a European Environment Agency report published this week. It shows that improving air quality to the levels recently recommended by the World Health Organization could prevent more than half the premature deaths caused by exposure to fine particulate matter. Also, East Sussex Council has started its search to appoint a single contractor to its new Highways Infrastructure Services contract. And finally for me this week, the National Infrastructure Commission has announced the topics that will sit at the heart of its next major assessment of the UK's long-term infrastructure priorities due to be published in 2023. The priorities will include identifying the infrastructure needed for hydrogen and carbon capture and storage to decarbonise part of the economy, improving recycling rates and the long-term investment needed for surface transport within and between cities and towns. Meanwhile, I like the story about improving active travel in Hounslow through some gamification, drones providing cost-effective bridge inspections in my home county of Essex, some better spending of my council tax and making the roads safer at the same time. There's an odd one in Lambeth where it looks like car use may have gone up in areas with low traffic neighbourhoods, and Apple turning your phone or watch into a version of eCall by adding crash detection capabilities is also on there and it's the ITS UK Awards next week. You can watch them in person at the event at Cubics HQ in Surrey or live online at the same time. Details of that event and all those stories and so much more are on our website and to your inbox every lunchtime if you sign up to our daily briefing. Thousands of industry leaders already have. Why don't you join them at highways-news.com Highways Voices with Paul Hutton and Adrian Tatum. A few years ago 
show, I was at a day conference about transport, which doesn't really narrow it down for me at all, when the keynote speaker introduced a background all about how humans behave in the real world rather than how transport planners and economists expect them to. With apologies to you if you're listening and I've heard you speak at a conference, but this one was the most entertaining and informative session I've ever heard, so much that I bookmarked the recording of it and often referred to some of the things mentioned in it. In fact, I did so in a chat only this week with someone. Meanwhile, at Traffics a couple of years ago, another great session talked about the way humans travel and how that's different to what we think they'll do, or indeed what we want them to do. These two great speakers have written a book. It's called Transport for Humans, Are We Nearly There Yet? And it's out on Thursday the 18th. So that's tomorrow if you're listening on podcast publication day. Otherwise, it's already out and I've put a link on the blurb. Rory Sutherland is vice chairman at Ogilvy. He's a regular on Radio 4 and has given a number of TED Talks. While Pete Dyson used to work with Rory at Ogilvy, but is now at the Department for Transport. I did actually intend to do what almost every journalist doing a book review doesn't and finish the book before we chatted. Alas, I only managed to get as far as the end of part one before we had our conversation, which was setting the scene for what's wrong with transport thinking at the moment. It sets out the premise early as to what would happen if behavioural scientists could get their hands on transport if they were transport planners but could not spend money on large infrastructure and did not have the power to raise taxes. How could they still improve travel? and transport. Pete begins the story. Well, I think we put a book together here that's in three really distinctive parts. To You've read the setting, out, setting the scene and setting an optimistic case for what we can do in the future. We have a second part that um, ultimately says, let's understand all these curiosities in a really scientific way to understand that the way we perceive the world isn't really in the sort of scientific metrics that we might uh, need to design it for when we put transport together. And in a third part that I think might be of great interest to listeners, when we design transport, what's going through our heads? What assumptions are we making? What tactics can we use to correct for that? Yes, I suppose I've got two premises here, one of which is that an understanding of human psychology offers far more potential for ingenuity in transport solutions than simply looking at what you might call real-world SI-derived metrics of speed and punctuality and, and you know, uh, capacity. So the scope for ingenuity is much, much greater if you're prepared to actually wrestle with some of the counterintuitive and sometimes eccentric mysteries of human perception, actually. This really goes deep down to kind of epistemology because we don't perceive the world objectively. We have, you can see this from the English language, time flies when you're having fun or it was the longest 10 minutes of my life. You know, we don't perceive time like a metronome or a stopwatch, for example. And ultimately it's our perception of time that probably matters more to our our behavior than the objective duration of something. And the second component of this is perhaps the more important but less fun, which is if you don't understand psychology, you can make very terrible mistakes because you can do things which seem perfectly logical within the framework of, say, economic modeling, but which are actually catastrophic uh, in terms of behavior. Now, I've only got a small example of this. I've just bought an electric car. Now, the electric car gives you effectively no, no congestion charge. And unfortunately, 
This acts as a slight incentive for me to drive into London. In my petrol car, I drove in, uh, let me see, I drove into London probably twice a year. To be honest, there doesn't need to be a congestion charge because the act of driving in London is so horrible that, to be honest, they should be paying me compensation for my general stress and <laughs> human suffering. But because I've got this electric car, it now creates the slight feeling that to get my money's worth, I need to drive into London a bit more frequently than I did before. So things like road pricing, if you don't understand two things, I think that um, human behavior does not follow the assumptions of standard economic and transport models. It's not a reductionist thing. Also, I think if you don't understand, people are different. And sometimes this can play to your advantage. We spend an awful lot of time trying to solve for the average. We take the average traveler, solve for him or her. Well, actually, of course, it's it because it's an average and uh, and then impose that optimal solution on everybody regardless of their varying preferences and comparative sets and i think if uh, one of the great things in tra tra transport is that the very fact that people are messy and different okay which is annoying if you're a reductionist modeler who wants to make everything neat can play to its advantage so for example how do people get from let's say liverpool street to at Notting Hill by train. Actually, you don't want everybody to take the same route. There's already a huge bias towards the central line because it's red and it goes in a straight line. But in fact, if you can play to people's different preferences and uh, different tastes, and not, not, not just the fact that people are different, but they're in a different mood, you know, sometimes they'd actually happily spend 20 minutes more on a tube because it had air conditioning for instance, uh, some people really hate going deep underground. Um, if you can actually play to this diversity, you can get people making much more intelligent use of the network as a whole uh, than you can if you treat everybody as uniform. I think that's really interesting. One of the points that you make in the book that is, is obvious, and actually I've got a personal example, is you say the greatest fallacy is, in tra is that travel time is wasted time, and the only option is to speed it up or cut it out. Now, I'm going uh, away for my silver wedding next year uh, with my wife, and we're going to Scotland, and we're taking the sleeper train. Now, an economist would say that's vastly more expensive and takes an awful lot longer. We'd be far better off driving to Stansted and jumping on an easy jet because that's much cheaper and much quicker. I, I had a friend who was the creative director of Ogilvy worldwide for many years who retired to uh, Mallorca. And he said the great thing about Mallorca, of course, he said, is that in your car you can get from, I guess it's Palmer, to uh, the south of France in an hour and a half. And he said, well, it's actually nine and a half hours, but you're asleep for eight of them. And the sleeper, of course, is an incredibly efficient use of time. That's another interesting question, by the way, because I use the sleeper very regularly when I go to Scotland, but always, all, almost always in one direction only. I might take a daytime train in the other direction. I don't think I've ever been to Scotland for a one or two day business trip where I use the sleeper in both directions. And that would be a case where, for example, we need to militate against uh, massive discounts for return tickets, whether it's on an airline or on a conventional railway network, because the sleeper is being unfairly um, uh, penalised, if you like, for being a brilliant one-way journey. You know, I've, I've done every combination in terms of Edinburgh of flight, daytime train, sleeper. 
that would be a, a perfect example where we need to be very, very alert to what's going on because the big, big discount for booking a return flight or a return uh, on the conventional train is unfairly penalising the sleeper. You hit on a really interesting point, and it's whereas marketeers and advertisers, but also academics who have studied this, would start questioning, has transport fully realised the key product that it is selling? On the one hand, it's the get the person from A to B point. But if you only think of it in those terms, then you get to this reductionist area of, well, get them to B faster than A is the best possible option. But thinking of it differently leads to some more cheeky um, ideas, like what if the sleeper train were a room on Airbnb? And when you're looking for rooms in Aberdeen, you can book the sleeper train, because after all, that could be your first night um, in Aberdeen or vice versa if you wanted to stay in London. And there suddenly the cost feels a little bit different because after all you're paying for a for a, um, a night's accommodation. And I suppose Rory and I's perspective as we've been working together has been that to see other sectors not engage in that same reductionism. So we don't see cafes be simply the efficient delivery of calories or hospitals merely be about curing or uh, affecting disease. We look at the wider sort of job to be done as a technical term would probably uh, describe it someone amusingly did try a reductionist approach to food and they said if you optimized food which was simply a price calorie equation what would you do and i think it involves going to walmart and buying an enormous block of lard (laughs) okay Um, so we don't do that with food we allow all kinds of other preferences uh, into the mix and we give people a menu and by the way the menu isn't biased Whereas transport apps worry me because they assume effectively that what's source for the goose is source for the gander. They assume time optimization. Um, and actually, uh, one, that, that has two problems. Sometimes it's wrong for the individual. But secondly, it causes, and this is true of SatNav as well, actually, it causes everybody to behave in more and more similar ways, which is bad for the efficient use of the network as a whole. I, I argue perversely there should be lots of, in a perfect world, we'd have lots of different tube maps that would just present the network slightly differently in order to create necessary variety. And by the way, I'm talking about that within a single mode, but we could also make the same point in getting people to shift from, um, let's say, air travel to video conferencing. Interesting you mention a single mode because one of the things that I picked out that I thought was fascinating in the book was you said when things are complicated, people tend to simplify. And the most obvious simplification is just to drive everywhere. Yeah, that was a quick turn of phrase. And um, we then in a later chapter go on to really pick apart what we describe as a first mile problem, a turn on the common phrase of the last mile delivery issue. But from the transport planners view, we have do have a first mile problem in that outside many people's driveways or outside on their street or near, if they own a car, then they have this area where the car is waiting for them, whereas they would need to be waiting for most other modes of public transport. And the deck is always stacked in the favour in those first few minutes of grabbing the car keys because your car is right in view, because you would get moving straight away, uh, because you can just get going and then work out the route later, because there's a relatively high degree of certainty that you're going to get there by hook or by crook, even if it's painful to do so. So we really look at this sort of uh, what's going through people's heads when they're choosing which mode. 
and it's complex. And sometimes those interventions might need to come in a little bit earlier um, to give other modes of transport a, a more fighting chance. And you mention in the book about the uh, place in Germany where they've actually mandated to not have your car outside your house. You have to park it away from your house to take away that instant first choice option. Yeah, absolutely. It's a neighbourhood called Valburn, um, and it experiments and it trials with that option. Now, while this book is called Transport for Humans, there might be a sequel, not by discipline, but Housing for Humans. It also looks at land use and says maybe there should be a greater variety and menu of different housing types and communities for exactly this sort of reason that it might suit some people to live in that sort of neighbourhood. Actually, of course, there's, a, there's an example of where that happens, which is centre parks, where you can only take your car to your housing. Uh, I think on the, it's Saturday is changeover day. And then that creates effectively a pedestrianised environment for you and your kids until the following Saturday. Interestingly, there's also a, a housing development not far from me in Kent called New Ash Green, which was designed in the 1970s that way. You can drop things off outside your house. I don't think you want to. I don't think you want to make the home inaccessible by car because if you're bringing back heavy shopping and it's raining heavily, there's a big advantage to being able to stop outside your front door and disgorge your content, your your guests and your shopping. But the car should arguably be stored maybe a hundred yards away. That way. You start your journey on foot and the car isn't sitting there as a default. I also make the point, by the way, that travel apps, even Google Travel, which is pretty good, they tend to be American. They don't really understand the concept of drive to a station and catch a train. So you can look at the journey as a car journey or you can look at it as a public transport journey, at which point it assumes you're going to be getting to the station by bus or on foot. And that also is a, is a further distortion of choice, by the way. And we, we need to be really conscious of this because, you know, it, it, it's a little like the, the Volkswagen scandal. A single tweak or mistake in an algorithm can literally lead to, you know, millions of people making bad decisions. And the Americans don't really understand what we might call the standard commuter rail model, which is drive to station, take train into London. And so it's very, very difficult to get recommendations for a multimodal journey that way. I want to pick up on you talked about speed. My view when I because, you know, and it comes back to wasted time when I get the train in from my little corner of North Essex into London, I actually really quite enjoy the ability to open up my laptop and sit and do an hour's work. I sit in the quiet carriage so I can ignore the phone and actually get quite a lot done. A um, couple of things about that. One, I, I, don't, I don't use quiet carriages because I always think I'm going to be travelling with neurotics. But that's, that, that's, again, a personal preference. I, I, I'm Welsh, so I like the ability to make a load of noise. Um, but there we go. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'll, I'll forgive you your, your weird okay. predilection. Okay, well, well, as it is at the moment, all the quiet carriages are cordoned off because they're near to the driver. And so for COVID, they don't want anybody coughing. But the two points I make is you pick up on the fact that Thameslink didn't put seat uh, tables on their commuter trains because it might take people longer to get on and off. Um, and the other thing is, my view is I don't necessarily want a faster journey but I want reliability. I want to be certain if I'm getting a train into London to go to Heathrow, that I don't have to get a train two hours earlier just in case there's a delay because I don't want to miss my flight. Absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, I actually travel into Blackfriars from Otford and quite regularly take the very slow stopping trains because they have uh, better mobile data coverage and precisely because it's slower. 
They tend to be empty. I can work on the train and it's an hour of uninterrupted time, which has actually more value than a journey where you're shifting from one train to another. You might save 20 minutes that way, but you actually lose 35 minutes of useful working time. Um, I think that's a very good point. Your, your other point was that, that, that variance might be a much, much more important factor than a- actual speed. And that's something which I don't think sat-navs figure out, that actually the route I would take to get to Gatwick to catch a flight is optimised really around reliability, not speed. And one great problem of motorways that we've never noticed is they're very, very good and very fast. But if something goes catastrophically wrong, you can be trapped there for an hour and a half and miss your plane. So a lot of people may choose unconsciously, perhaps, to travel to the airport by a road, which gives you both. I suppose it gives you more optionality, doesn't it? If you know, if if the A25 gets blocked, there's a back lane I can take. If the M25 gets blocked, I'm effectively a prisoner for the next 45 minutes. And so you're absolutely right that actually that's a factor that's it's difficult to capture. But in many, many cases, particularly in your journey to work rather than your journey back home, um, uh, not being late for work is more important than getting there fast. Okay, and you mentioned the M word. You mentioned motorways. Now, I haven't got there is a very small mention of smart motorways in the book that I've reached so far, where basically you say that there is a complete lack of education. So drivers don't understand them and therefore don't use them properly. And they talk always about the three E's of engineering, education and enforcement. And in fact, for the Red X, there was the engineering, but very little education until much later and certainly no enforcement for a long time either. I really worry about using fines as a mode for changing human behaviour. And let me explain why. When I drove into London, I realised that in driving in London, there are so many bus lanes. The speed limit changes from 30 to 20 all the time. The parking restrictions are enforced with a kind of, you know, absolutely fascist intensity. OK, And I suddenly realised that for someone below median income, a drive into London, particularly an unfamiliar drive into London, now probably carries the 5% risk of a kind of, you know, 50 to 80 to 100 pound fine. And I don't don't think just in the grounds of social equity, I, I just don't think this is fair. You know, I'm prosperous enough that I can take one hit. 50, 60% of the population aren't. And we don't even give them a first chance to make a mistake with a slightly more modest fine. And so uh, the the business of using that enforcement thing really, really worries me, because in order to create fines which are sufficiently motivating for the wealthy, you take the risk of significantly and unfairly penalising uh, people, not just the poor, but the, you know, the averagely wealthy. But the second thing is that they're a really good idea, smart motorways. They involve the understanding of a counterintuitive thing that by traveling slower, you can sometimes get to your destination faster. Okay. Now it's deeply counterintuitive because most of us drive through the heuristic of, you know, go as fast as you can legally at any one moment. And if we'd explained this better, uh, you know, let's face it, you know, an advertising campaign would have cost about the same as about, you know, 600 yards of smart motorway. We would have got much, much greater appreciation of what they do, how they work, what makes them different? A similar, by the way, psychological point is motorway pricing. And let's face it, road pricing is going to come in in the next 10 years. We don't really have much choice unless you tax electricity in a way that makes it impossible for poorer people to heat their homes. 
we don't really have much choice but to introduce road pricing, and we need to understand the psychology of that much Highways better. Voices, you, you the podcast from highwaysnews.com. really turn it into a kind of perk for the rich, or you could do it intelligently. And um, I, I, I think um, we, we really need to think about this. One of the questions about smart motorways is I wonder if it's doing the age-old problem of solving a problem that isn't there because opening up the hard shoulder on the M42 near Birmingham at rush hour, when everybody's already only going 40 miles an hour, um, the chances of if you do break down um, and you get hit from behind, it's a shunt. It's not catastrophic. It's not fatal. You've got the lane open at three o'clock in the morning and you break down and a tired lorry driver doesn't see you to the last minute. And then there is a catastrophe, but you don't necessarily need. Well, you don't need the lane open uh, at that time of the morning because there's plenty of capacity on the other three. Something that I think we could hope that we can look at is to really bring there's hope that the behavioural science and social sciences more generally can bring this extra dimension into how people think about their trip planning so whether they would use the m42 at that time um and when they do how they think about risk and safety and we're quite optimistic that the tools of behavioral science and where it is a science is applying a method of let's test out different communications let's see how people think about risk let's find out what engages different people where and when that we might be able to generate um, better education and better engagement so without necessarily answering the question precisely, it does look as though um, how an individual thinks about risk is different to how you might think about risk at a population level. Um, and the scariness of a lack of a hard shoulder might loom quite large in some people's minds and the nature of the risk might have shifted away from uh, something that's in somebody's control to something that isn't in their control. And this is something that science and social sciences are really quite good at and maybe is otherwise has in the past been underutilized uh, for what it can sort of bring to the debate and the table to help engineers and road planning um, get the most out of the, the tarmac available. Pete, when I met you at Traffix a couple of years ago, you were working for Ogilvy with Rory, who's vice chairman. Now you're actually working at the Department for Transport, which means that the Department for Transport is taking what you two have been saying seriously enough to employ somebody about it. What changes are in mindset of the department now um, making? Yeah, that's a fair question. I'm here to represent myself as the author of the book rather than as a representative of DFT today. But um, I think it's been really promising and the reason that... Uh, I am in the department is that we've built out a uh, specific behavioral science team to answer exactly the kind of questions that uh, we're looking at. A team can look at cross-cutting issues around how people think about sustainable sustainability and sustainable transport, how they think about confidence to travel under situations of coronavirus. And it gives us, in truth, a chance to really break out of particular modes and mode-specific thinking. That's the, the broad thrust of the work that we do excellent well we're nearly out of time but i want to just finish with you rory and say the book is called transport for humans are we nearly there yet obviously i've hit the here are the issues then you talk about it from a planner point of view then you talk about it from a traveler point of view when i get to the end of the book obviously we're not going to be there because what you're you're doing is making suggestions but do, will I have a route map for how transport should actually plan itself for the next hundred years? 
I would argue that the first thing we've got to do is just ask better questions. And that will lead to extraordinary progress in and of itself, that we're just assuming that certain metrics, usually SI-derived engineering metrics, are the summum bonum of, uh, of transport improvement. Uh, I think uh, <coughs> the danger of mathematics is you can always have a high degree of confidence in your rightness while being wrong. Because if you're ultimately optimizing the wrong optimands, okay, um, everybody gets trapped in what seems like a perfectly logical obsession with, for example, speed and time, and then effectively misses what really matters to humans because our perception is very, very different. We, you know, we, evolution did not imbue us with scientific instruments which determine our happiness. You know, we don't have metronomes in our heads. We don't have, uh, you know, absolutely standard uh, modes of perception. We have all sorts of evolutionary hangovers like status consciousness, which have a huge effect on our emotional state and therefore have a huge effect on our behavior. And so I think uh, the first thing is that we need to understand transport, not from the network operator's perspective, which is a kind of top-down perspective. We need to understand it from the user's perspective. Uh, we need to understand that users are different, but we also need to understand, let me give you an example of this with road pricing, okay, which I don't think we've understood. The assumption is that you charge for roads by individual act of use. That's also the assumption about parking, by the way. I think it's a fundamental mistake, because if you think about it, if I go to Windsor once a year and it costs nine pounds to park in the car park at Windsor, OK, I'm OK with that. You know, I'm only doing this once. It's a bit of a treat. I'm on a jolly. What the hell? I'll get to see Windsor. I pay the nine pounds to the residents of Windsor. That basically renders their town centre more or less unusable because nine multiplied by 100 visits is 900 quid a year. You notice this massively, I think, on the French motorways, because I was always baffled, because if you're anywhere within kind of 150 miles from Calais, about half the motorists on the French motorway seem to be British cars. And they actually call it the Autoroute des Anglais. And, OK, hold on, this is a bit weird, OK? And then you realise, of course, for the, for the Brit... Paying for a motorway in France is a, is a one-off annual expenditure. And you go, ah, what the hell? It's going to cost us 50 quid. We'll use the motorway, 50 euros, okay? The French who live locally, that same charge might be daily, not annual. And we tend to assume, we tend to assume mathematically that one times 100 equals 100 times one. Because in mathematical models, we don't distinguish, it's, Technically, I suppose, similar to the concept of ergodicity in, in physics or statistical mechanics. Now, in the same way, by the way, high speed two saves a hell of a lot of people an hour, 10 times a year. Now, high speed one saves 10% of the people, maybe an hour, 100 times a year. They're, now, in terms of time savings, mathematically, those are identical. In terms of behavior change, they're not. Similarly, charging a thousand people ten pounds once is not the same as charging one person ten pounds a thousand times. Okay, you know, in, in in one instance it's just one of those costs. In the other instance, well, I'm not going to shop in Windsor anymore. And I don't think we understand this. And I think road pricing will have to factor this in. We'll have to have kind of Amazon Prime-like mechanisms where if you make the journey regularly, you pay less than if you make the journey occasionally. Uh, you know, if you take the, what's it, the M6 toll road, 
well, I, you know, I live in Kent. I use it twice a year. They could, to be honest, they could charge what the hell they like. In my case, if I live locally and I need, need to use it daily, you can't charge that same price. So we need to understand this much, much better, because otherwise we'll very confidently use economic models to make dumb decisions. Such good stuff, and they've promised to come back and talk about individual aspects in more detail on future Highways Voices, so we'll look forward to that next year. An extra long chat, so we're almost out of time, but we're not going anywhere before we've tipped our hat to someone or some people doing amazing things in our industry. Adrian's back. Who's Adrian's accolade this week? My accolade this week goes to the team at Hounslow Council and its partners who devised a game in the London borough to increase the amount of walking and cycling. The Beat the Street game wanted to see whether it could encourage people to travel actively. Residents and visitors to Hounslow could earn points by tapping a card on the physical box placed throughout the borough. Over the course of the game, 28,219 people took part, which is roughly 9.6% of the population of Hounslow, and collectively they travelled 96,849 miles. So with all the active travel measures in place, that one definitely deserves my accolade. And that is Adrian's accolade this week. And that is it from Adrian and me for today. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Pete and Rory as much as I did. I'm off to finish the book now. And if you come to the ITS UK Members Day next week, I'll probably quote some of it at you. Hope to see you there next Thursday. And beforehand, I'll join you for another podcast next week. Highways Voices. Join us again next week for more insights from those that matter in the industry.